This week on the Backtable podcast. So I think the goal is that right now we've demonstrated that we can delay recurrence, but the hope is that we can prevent recurrence and cure more patients. We haven't yet demonstrated that because we don't have the OS data. But the hope is that, in fact, we're not just delaying recurrence, but we're preventing them and we're potentially increasing the number of people that are cured. And so that's what I think the holy grail is. But I think the data is still a little immature because we haven't yet proved that. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Taking out med school loans had me watching every penny. I took two buses to get to campus. During my residency, I walked 20 blocks. But since I opened a Laurel Road Link checking account when I refinanced my loans, I got a crazy low rate plus a cash bonus. And all that extra money helped me finally buy my own car. Where are we going? Anywhere we want. Laurel Road for doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrode as your host this week. And I'm very excited to introduce our two guests today. Kareem Bensala, who is the chair and professor at the University of Rennes in France, and Raina McKay, who is an associate professor at UC San Diego. More importantly, these are two dear people to me. Kareem was one of my first mentors when I was a medical student and really shaped the way I thought about academics and urology. And Raina is an incredible superstar partner here at UC San Diego. How are you all doing today? Thanks so much for being here. Doing awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much for the invitation. This is a great pleasure to be with you all. Kareem, things are going okay in France? We are doing fine. Very sunny. Excellent. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about adjuvant therapy for kidney cancer. I think it's safe to say over the last 20 years, two decades or so, this has been a black hole and kind of a holy grail. You know, there's been so many attempts, cytokines, interferons, vaccines, and really almost no signal for the last 15, 20 years or so. So we'll kind of jump into the state of affairs and maybe practical implementation of this. So Karine, let me just start with you. When you get a new referral kidney cancer patient, you're looking at the imaging. Are you already starting to think about, you know, I'm going to start the conversation of bringing up adjuvant therapy at that point? Yes, I do. When, particularly when you see those patients in whom you think the, the pathology won't be good, those who have big tumors, those who have venous thrombuses, I might tell them that it's one possibility that uh, when I see them after surgery, we will discuss the uh, inclusion into an adjuvant trial. Okay. So features, venous thrombus, suspicious lymph nodes, extension into the adrenal, things like this, you, you maybe bring up the conversation, but it doesn't sound like you're actually making a medical oncology referral at that point. Oh, not before surgery, because at least in France, for now, we, we don't have any new adjuvant trials. So uh, we'll have to wait for ultimate pathology to decide whether we will or not include them in adjuvant trials. Got it. And, and Reina, so if I saw somebody with like a 
fairly clear cut level one, level two tumor thrombus, probably obviously go ahead and get them completely staged, brain imaging, CT chest, abdominal imaging. And then as I'm planning to schedule the surgery, I would probably go ahead and have them see you uh, likely to discuss adjuvant therapy, recognizing that, you know, we don't have any data in the neoadjuvant setting. What do you think about that kind of on the front end? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to begin to plant the seed early on and come at it from a team approach, because I think it's I think always good for the patient when there's synchrony amongst their providers, amongst their clinicians that are giving them care to sort of kind of be singing to the same tune, if you will. So I think it's important. It's certainly a lot of shared decision making with the patient ultimately about the decision to pull the trigger on starting treatment. But having that discussion is is important and having it right off the bat is important. Yeah, Kareem, I don't think I was clear when I asked you the question. So it was more, are you having the conversation? And actually in France, do you administer your own systemic therapies or is that done in conjunction with the medical oncologist? Oh, no, this medical treatment are taken care of by a medical oncologist. So we, we don't, uh, there are maybe one or two urologists who do that, but the vast majority of medical treatment are, are given by the oncologist. But uh, in France for now, we, we don't have any uh, formal approval of uh, any kind of adjuvant treatment. So that's why I, I won't refer the patients before, before surgery is achieved. Okay. And do you use any type of preoperative nomograms when you're talking to patients on the front end? Or is it mostly looks like there's, you know, some possible nodal involvement, some possible renal sinus invasion or venous branch invasion, and your risk of relapse may be X, Y, or Z. How do you approach that? Or just wait for the final pathology? Yeah, no, I don't use nomograms on a regular basis because they have many, many limitations. I only use them when the patients ask for numbers. It's quite unusual in France, but some of our patients, they want to know what's the uh, exact rate of uh, recurrence. So that's when I will use it. Otherwise, I will just rely on, as we discussed earlier, some signs on imaging, the presence of a thrombus, the big tumors, the nodal invasion, of course, and wait for final pathology to know whether it's clear cell or not. Got it. So let's just say that they've received their surgery, whether a partial or a radical nephrectomy. Maybe you did some nodes, whether there was something suspicious preoperatively or intraoperatively, and now their pathology is coming back. Raina, if you were to see a patient, you know, what are the kind of pathological features that you're, you're kind of dialing in on? Well, I think a lot of things that we look at are obviously, of course, stage. I think stage matters. Do they have T3 disease? You know, is it just some renal vein invasion or do they actually have IVC thrombus with extension into the IVC? What's the extent of extension out of the kidney? Nodal involvement. Grade is also critically important. Is it a grade four, very poorly differentiated tumor or not? So those are, I think, the pathologic features that I will look at. There's been other nomograms that have looked at necrosis and other things, but I think grade and stage are bona fide, you know, markers pathologically. So, yeah, Kareem, tell us a little bit about, you know, when the final path comes in, the features that you're dialed in on. Oh, uh, this is a very good question. And it really is when you're going to decide which patient is going to potentially benefit from the adjuvant treatment. The criteria of adjuvant treatment, and particularly those of the keynote 564, 
are quite uh, blur. I, I don't know how they were chosen exactly. But what we know is that all those patients who were included in these adjuvant uh, trials, they don't have the same natural evolution of their disease. Particularly PT2 and PT3A patients usually do good, whereas PT3B, PT4, N plus patients are the ones who have the uh, highest risk of recurrence. So these are the ones I will focus on to discuss with them the inclusion of, in the trial or give them the treatment if available. Yeah, I think that's a critical point. And I also would love to hear y'all's perspective on if sarcomatoid features or rhabdoid features are reported in the pathology. Does that kind of catch your attention in any type of meaningful way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really high-risk feature. Not really. All right. So some differing opinions on the impact of sarcomatoid and rhabdoid features. Okay. So let's say that you're typically seeing patients two to four weeks after surgery. And I agree, you know, in my practice, I usually don't actually pull up a nomogram. Their T3, I do think it's worthwhile to, and above, to mention, you know, at least the risk of relapse is going to approach 30 to 50%. And I also think T3 is a bit of a catch-all, you know, what's renal sinus fat or segmental vessel or perinephric fat. Those to me are slightly different biologies. All right. So they're, they're two to four weeks out. Kareem, who are you referring to see your medical oncology? The ones I will prioritize are patients with venous thrombus. I think it's really a, a marker of bad biology. When the tumor is able to invade the vein, it's probably that she has uh, the ability to, to do some damage. So they will be the ones, if the CT scan rules out any kind of distant metastasis, they will be the ones I will refer to the oncologist. Then I will focus on those who have big tumors. And when you remove a small tumor, did a partial nephrectomy and that it advertently show that it's a small PT3A because there is a one or two millimeter invasion of the, in the uh, sinus fat or perinal fat, I will really have a, an honest discussion with the patient, telling them that the risk of recurrence is quite limited and I'm not sure he will be the one who will benefit at most from any adjuvant treatment. So maybe before we jump into like really a deep dive into the pathology, how about patient-specific factors? Is there age ranges or are there age ranges, gender considerations, or even just general partial versus radical nephrectomy that are, that are impacting your decision here? Or are those kind of inconsequential? What do you think, Reina? They definitely do. You know, I think performance status matters. I think if somebody is not fit, has a lot of comorbidities, that is going to play into whether you're going to give them an adjuvant therapy. And I know we don't really largely use a lot of these nomograms in true clinical practice. A lot of them do incorporate ECOG performance status. So I do think that that plays into effect. Okay. And then how about the PATH features? Do you feel like everybody, you know, T2, grade four, and advanced should be seeing a medical oncologist to discuss? Well, I think the discussion should be had, you know, whether it's with a medical oncologist or whether it's with their surgeon, I think it's important to talk about what's the suspected risk of recurrence based off of the clinical features that we have. Unfortunately, we don't have a blood or tissue-based biomarkers that can help refine our risk stratification. So it's 
having that discussion with the patient and saying, hey, this is what we have right now and what we can do. This is what TKIs look like. This is what adjuvant pembrolizumab looks like. This is what your risk of recurrence is. And you can give any given patient those three parameters and they will weigh them on the scale differently. And people's risk tolerance and benefit gain is different. So you could present the same exact situation to one patient and they will make one decision and somebody else may make a different decision with the same pathologic features and the same risk of recurrence. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. You know, if you have a younger patient on the kind of favorable end of this spectrum with call about a 20% risk of relapse, that's what I would quote somebody with like a T2, grade three, grade four. They may say, you know, I'm willing to do something to reduce a 20% chance of risk of recurrence. Whereas to maybe a 82-year-old, that's going to be a little bit less compelling. Exactly. I think the sheer nature of like adjuvant therapy is we're over-treating some and probably under-treating some. So if you take the extremes, you're probably over-treating your lowest-risk patients and you're probably under-treating your highest-risk patients. We just don't know right now how to better refine that. And so I think that's like the Achilles heel of like adjuvant therapy, right? It's like we know we over-treat some, but we undertreat others. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my main areas of focus is testicular cancer. And that's something that we're kind of contending with day in and day out. And suffice it to say, if you kind of get it wrong and undertreat, generally it comes along with treatment intensification. Kareem, what do you think about that? You know, this kind of philosophical over-treatment, under-treatment? No, I totally agree. Every discussion in the medical field is a balance between what you can expect and uh, what we can give them. And uh, the problem is that we are really bad at foreseeing the natural evolution of any kind of a renal tumor and even the latest prognostic system, such as the Asher system, they have bad discrimination, bad calibration. So we don't really know when we see a patient how the tumor is going to behave. Anyway, we do know that some of the tumors have really higher chance compared to the others. And so that will be the discussion I will have with the patients. I will say, I, I will probably influence them, tell them that, yes, given the risk of recurrence that I think you have, I would strongly advise you for uh, an adjuvant treatment. And in other patients, such as those with PT2 tumors, I will tell them it's available, you can do it, but your risk of recurrence is much lower so there's a higher chance that you will be over-treated. But anyway, in the, uh, in the Keynote 564, all the benefits were seen across all subgroups. So you can see it as a benefit for every kind of patients, but it's probably a personalized discussion that has to be done with every single patient. That sounds totally fair. And, you know, at this stage, do you think there's any role for sequencing, you know, as a BAP1 mutation or a PBRM mutation or PDL1 staining? Is that going to factor in at this point or is that a bit premature? I think it's probably a bit premature. I think it's an academic exercise right now, but the hope is actually in the future that we would be able to use such parameters in our risk stratification tools that if somebody has molecularly worse features that they would do better. But these markers right now, I think, if anything, they're just prognostic, not necessarily predictive that they're going to respond better to PEMBRO or TKI. Yeah. All right. So we won't take a total walk down memory lane of all the negative trials. Maybe we can just focus on, you know, in the U.S., we basically have 
two FDA approved options as adjuvant treatment, TKIs, sunitinib, and then uh, adjuvant IO. And cream in Europe, TKIs are not approved by the European Union. Kareem, first off, is that a correct statement? Yeah, the uh, TKIs are not approved and uh, adjuvant Pembro is approved, but it's not reimbursed right now. So we're waiting for it. So the only way you can have an adjuvant treatment in France right now is to be included in an adjuvant trial. Oh, well, so patients can pay out of pocket. They won't have it covered by the national healthcare system, but if they're on a trial, they can get it. Is that right? Exactly. All right. So, Raina, are there any patients that you think are good candidates for adjuvant TKIs? I am very hard-pressed to use them in clinical practice because of the one year of toxicity. I mean, really, in essence, you just have the S-TRAC trial that was the only positive trial in a sea of many negative trials. There was a DFS benefit that was modest with no even signal for OS. And it's a one year of one year of toxicity. You basically delay them by the, a year, but they're on TKI for a year to basically prevent their progression by a year. You haven't really gained much. So I'm not certainly using them. Um, I think a lot of it may be, like you said, a, a young patient that sort of will do anything to potentially prevent a recurrence or delay a recurrence where you sort of have, have that discussion, say, okay. But I think the field has now changed with at least in the U.S., pembrolizumab being approved, I think the tone of that discussion is very different. And could you just give us, let's hear your adjuvant pembro spiel, if you will. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, maybe we could just like step back and kind of summarize the data. So if that's okay. Yeah, no, that'd be, that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. You know, this was a large phase three trial that basically took patients with clear cell RCC. And the patients who enrolled on this trial had such a heterogeneous risk of recurrence. It enrolled patients that had T2 grade four all the way to M1 NED. So like when I talk about like the heterogeneity and we're undertreating and overtreating some, like it enrolled patients who were metastatic and were completely resected. So their risk of recurrence ranged from 90% to 20%. And so it's such a heterogeneous patient population. Patients were randomized to receive Pembro for a year or placebo for a year. The primary endpoint was DFS by investigator assessment as opposed to central review. And a key secondary endpoint was OS. The trial was positive. It delayed the time to progression. And, you know, they had a weird stratification for intermediate high, high risk and very high risk, which, you know, we don't use that in clinical practice. You know, not sure where those categories came from, but the bulk of the patients that actually enrolled were like your classic T3 patients. That was the bulk of the people that enrolled. But the trial was positive. And even though the OS data is immature, there did seem to be a signal that I think we're going to continue to have to follow over time. So, you know, out of all the things that we do in the clinic, I think pembrolizumab does tend to be fairly well tolerated. You know, but the thing that scares me is the irreversible IRAE that are just going to be devastating for some people who experience them. They're not common and there were no treatment-related deaths on the study, but I think it's something to contend with. So when I have a patient before me, I kind of go through that feel of, this is what I think your risk of recurrence is. This is what we're going to gain with Pembro. This is what we're going to lose with Pembro with regards to AEs, cost of coming into the clinic, your time coming into the clinic. 
you know, it's an IV infusion given once every six weeks. So compared to other things that we do, it's not as onerous when we think about adjuvant therapies for other malignancies, for example. But we go through that discussion and everybody will make a different decision. And I think for those people that are really high risk, I probably would lean towards it. But, you know, we don't have the OS data. I think for those M1 patients, some may make the case that, well, in the front line, we use doublets. And am I under treating them? Like, should, should, should I give them a doublet? You know, and now I've given them IO. And if they progress, like, what have I done? But we don't have that data yet. So I think it's a protracted discussion, I guess, if you will. All right. So some, some nuts and bolts. Typically, how long do you like to wait after surgery, Kareem, uh, before you would have them start an IO? An IO. So I usually see them one month after surgery. And if they recovered well, and if they're willing to have this treatment, if they don't have too many comorbidities, if they are well aware of the potential side effects and the impact on their quality of life, because they have to come regularly to the clinics, they have to undergo a more stringent follow-up, then I'll refer them to the medical oncologist right away. Okay. So what I typically do is after I see them post-operatively, if they're truly high risk, I generally would put in the medical oncology referral. We're actually quite lucky here to have a multidisciplinary clinic where they can actually be directly scheduled in to meet with the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and urologist. And generally as they're recovering, I actually like to get short interval imaging, you know, maybe six, eight weeks after surgery, just to make sure they haven't developed a MET and would potentially be undertreated by kind of IO monotherapy. What do you all think about that? I think this is perfect. This is the way to do. Okay. So generally you want them recovered six weeks, they're, you know, wound healing complications, et cetera, are really of deemed to be a good candidate. Then it's once every three weeks for a year, or is it six weeks, Raina? Yeah, it could be given once every six weeks, actually. There is a every three-week formulation for Pembro, but you can certainly do it once every six. And in clinical practice, probably that's what we do, but with a lot of instruction around AEs and when to call and things like that. All right. So when they say, you know, doc, what's this going to do for me? I don't know if I think about new adjuvant chemotherapy prior to cystectomy, I can say you know, there's about a five to 10% chance that you increased chance of you being alive in, in five years. How do you kind of break this down for a patient? Like, here's what you can actually expect if you actually have residual disease. So I think the goal is that right now we've demonstrated that we can delay recurrence, but the hope is that we can prevent recurrence and cure more patients. We haven't yet demonstrated that because we don't have the OS data. But the hope is that, in fact, we're not just delaying recurrence, but we're preventing them and we're potentially increasing the number of people that are cured. And so that's what I think the holy grail is. But I think the data is still a little immature because we haven't yet proved that. Sure. So we've talked about when to start. We've talked about how frequently, I mean, I've already learned, you know, when you read the article, I think it's every three weeks and six weeks is actually relatively tolerable. I mean, 52 divided by six is about what, eight treatments per year, pretty doable. An infusion is a couple of hours. And then without kind of getting into the nitty gritty, and patients are like, all right, what can I maybe anticipate from a side effect profile? I think most patients actually tend to tolerate the treatment quite well. There may be some fatigue. There may be some low-grade diarrhea, maybe a rash, kind of allergic-type symptoms. 
maybe their LFTs bump a little bit, but they don't necessarily feel that. That's something that I see. Then we stop their therapy or adjust things. But like I said, most patients are actually going to feel well. The rates of grade three and higher tox on the trial was less than 20%. But I think in those patients that have grade three or higher toxicity, it can be pretty significant. Like I said, they could get profound colitis. They could get type one diabetes and be on insulin. These things are rare. But I think if we think about broad utilization of adjuvant pembrolizumab in the masses, we're going to see these events occur, even though, like I said, there was no treatment related deaths on the study. But I think when we scale things up into real world practice, and now there's thousands of patients that are getting this adjuvant therapy, we're going to see some of these toxicities arise. Kareem, what's your experience been like? Do you have patients that are receiving adjuvant Pembro? I do. I had patients who received the adjuvant Pembro. I had them, I included many patients in, uh, I seen many patients in the iMotion O10 who were receiving atezolizumab. And I remember the patients who were on the S-Track trial and who were receiving Sutent. And now what I can see from a surgeon's perspective is that when they were on TKIs, they were miserable. But when they receive IO as an adjuvant treatment, well, they are doing well. And uh, I, I can't remember of any one of my patients that I regularly see in parallel with the oncologist who had a, a really, uh, really important side effect with uh, adjuvant monotherapy. So that's what I tell them. From a surgeon's perspective, I tell them there's, you can expect a 5 to 10% decrease in terms of recurrence. And usually there is little impact on quality of life, but, and I tell them you have a, I don't know if Reynes will be, we will be okay with that. I tell them you have a 2% experiencing a, a very serious side effects as, such as diabetes, which can be the one that I wouldn't like them to have. Yeah, I think we've all kind of had some shared patients who had a really profound colitis or a pneumonitis or something like that, or development of... You know, I had a melanoma patient who had finger necrosis, et cetera. But yeah, I, I kind of agree, you know, from the urologist perspective, I generally would say that this is fairly well tolerated. You do want to have an expert team that's familiar with managing the the side effects. What about non-clear cell histologies? You know, is this just like a huge gap or, you know, what do we tell these patients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a huge unmet need. And I think we are, we are still lumping all non-clear cells into one bucket. And we know that each one of those entities behaves differently, has a different pathogenesis and probably different response to IO. The data from the metastatic literature, it's, it seems like chromophobes don't really respond well at all to IO therapy, but there do seem to be responses to people with papillary and unclassified. I think it's a huge unmet need. I think we need trials in this setting. But I think the model that has been adopted in the, in the metastatic setting has been in areas where we are data poor to model what we do in clear cell. And so while I'm a huge advocate for clinical trials, I think you'd have to, I wouldn't be opposed to sort of having that discussion with a non-clear cell patient as opposed to saying we have nothing. Kareem, what do you think? At my institution and in, at many centers in France, we do have the Rampart trial. It's a randomized trial that evaluates the randomized patients for receiving placebo versus uh, dualvalumab or tremelumab. 
and uh, we can include patients with non-clear cell histology. So that's what I would uh, offer them if they have big, probably not for chromophobe tumors because they're kind of not too aggressive tumors, but the ones who have big papillary tumors, that's what I would suggest them. Okay. Yeah. I love, obviously, the fact that getting them on a trial, I think we have to extrapolate. You know, there's always kind of a unmet need, holier than thou, that we need a trial specific for this. And, and clearly, people are doing excellent work in that uh, department. So, Kareem, if I may, from your end, I think the conversation on the preoperative side is really going to be imaging dependent and comorbidity dependent. And then it's really T3As and above that in the post-operative setting would incline you to make a medical oncology referral. Is that fair? Exactly. What I fear the most is the tumors with venous thrombus. As Rana was pointing earlier, we don't have any biological marker. And when it comes to RCC, I believe the best biological marker is uh, the venous invasion. It's really a, a bad sign. When you have a, a venous thrombus of any kind, when the tumor is localized, one out of two patients will experience recurrence in, in the two years. So these are really the ones I would really push forward for uh, an adjuvant treatment. Yeah, to me, the no-brainers are the M1-resected NED, the lymph node-positive patients, the venous thrombus patients, then the you know minimal sinus fat, minimal perinephric fat, kind of get me a little less excited, but I don't want to make that decision for somebody. And then the T2s, you know, that that's one random that I might hold on to for before I start freaking them out and talking about adjuvant treatment. Yeah, I hear you. That's a, I like the way you broke that down. And I think this is part of it because it is a huge range, right? It's 20 to 90% and we do carry our biases going into it. So, you know, even over the last five years, we saw S-Track come and I've never seen one person that was actually excited about S-Track. I've been privileged to work with excellent thought-leading medical oncologists and urologists. So I never even refer to patient to discuss adjuvant TKIs. IOs, I think, are, you know, a game changer, but probably the first in a series of things coming through the pipelines. And now, Kareem, maybe I'll start with you. What, what makes you excited in kind of the adjuvant space for, for kidney cancer? From a surgeon's perspective, I think we should explore the field of uh, perioperative treatments. In the States, you have the PROSPER trial, where uh, the patients are given new adjuvant and adjuvant nivolumab. And I guess you have the same feeling. When you do surgery uh, in patients who have big tumors, you sometimes see unexpected early progression. And I believe that uh, surgery can be a big trauma, can be deleterious. And maybe, maybe there might be a rationale for giving preoperative IO that will help the patient cope with that big trauma. So that's what I'd be willing to see more trials, whether with one molecule or two molecules. But remember, these patients are usually... Uh, patients with localized tumors, so we really should take care not to damage their quality of life. And I'm not sure that adding molecules will be worth it. Uh, but yes, definitely perioperative trials. Yeah, I think we're all keenly excited about 
Prosper reading out, for instance. I think that's going to be one that that we're pretty excited about. What about you, Reina, before I kind of put in my biases? I think the other trials reading out is going to be important. I think there's been data already released from Prosper that it did not meet the futility mark. So I think more to come. It kind of came out as a release from the DSMB for the trial. But I think speaking about all of the logistics with Prosper, it's, you know, enrolled both clear cell, non-clear cell. It enrolled patients that, you know, were just clinical T2 going in and and it was based off of clinical staging. So I think we're going to have to see the data. Obviously, look forward to 914, the Checkmate 914 of Nevo Ipi. Emotion 010 is going to be critically important and Rampart because it included also the variant histologies. But I think what I'm most excited about is can we move away from just clinical parameters alone or pathologic parameters alone to blood or tissue-based biomarkers to help refine our prediction of who is actually going to recur and beyond just prognostic, but also predicting response to the IO or whatever that we're going to do in the adjuvant context. So I think hopefully clinical trials in the future will embed integral biomarkers to guide therapy selection. Totally. I mean, it's like after you're in a nephrectomy, you're either cured or you're not cured. And, you know, if we could, whether it's cell-free DNA or a methylation mark or, you know, the next assay du jour, if we can identify that not cured patient and, and start really working on them, I think that's obviously going to be a big part of this. And Kareem, I absolutely hear what you're saying in terms of adding therapy. I think as it stands today, if we're looking at these clinical parameters, to me, like doublet, IO, adjuvant, seems like a lot. I mean, because as a urologist, as a urologic oncologist, I think that the toxicity profile changes quite a bit. What do you think, Kareem? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think one of the main, living longer is one thing. But enjoying life is another one, and uh, the doublets will really increase the risk of experiencing serious side effects. And, and then the balance we were referring to at the beginning of our podcast uh, might really uh, swift to, uh, to the side of uh, no benefits. So in my opinion, in the future, I would love having uh, biomarkers that would tell me which patients would benefit from NEIO. I'm not sure we'll have them soon, but let's continue uh, searching for them. And maybe, maybe in the meantime, you, you were saying uh, that patients you were uh, considering for adjuvant treatment were the patients who had nodal involvement or the M1 NED. I think that these patients, in my opinion, they're more comparable to metastatic patients. They're not the one who have a localized disease in whom uh, you can give a treatment hoping that it will prevent the recurrence. So in the future, I hope that the trials will maybe select patients with higher stage disease and maybe we can see a clearer benefit of these uh, adjuvant treatments when uh, we don't have all the T2 patients or those with small tumors who, in my opinion, will probably have a, a, a less benefits from, uh, from the treatments. Yeah, I think that, that you're spot on and it absolutely is going to open another thing. You know, these kind of occult metastatic patients, do we treat them? You know, how do we treat them? 
Well, you know, as, as we kind of come upon an hour here, first off, just want to thank you for your time. It's been massively informative to me. Some of my takeaways are that we really ought not to be paternalistic about whether or not a patient would be a good candidate. It's probably worth having the conversation and trying to keep an open mind about it. You know, I feel really, really happy to work in multidisciplinary context for bladder and for prostate. I think multi-D is kind of part and parcel of top-notch care. I think kidney cancer is going to be shortly behind that. But maybe I'll just ask for your kind of parting thoughts for the listenership before we wind down. Marina, what do you think? Oh, this is an exciting time. I do think we've made headway with the IO therapies. I think our patients are living longer and living better when we look at the overall survival for patients with RCC now. And so I do think we've made great strides, but more work to do. Mm -hmm. And Kareem? Yes, same. I really hope that uh, we'll see an OS signal with the uh, Keynote 564. And I do hope that the other trials, then when we have the results, they, they will be positive so that we can uh, maybe ask ourselves less questions and uh, refer more patients for adjuvant treatment. That's my hope. Well, fantastic. You know, I think you all have contributed so much to this field, you know, whether that's neoadjuvant, adjuvant, cytoreductive, it's evolving and it's an exciting time. So, you know, again, I thank you both for your, your time and your thoughtful contributions and look forward to getting this one out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vedavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.